Welcome back to the Brexit Brits Abroad podcast. I'm Dr. Mikla Benson, a reader in sociology at Goldsmiths University of London and the research lead for a UK and a Changing Europe funded project that's all about what Brexit means for British citizens living in the EU 27. Happy New Year and welcome to 2020. I hope you've all had a really nice break over the Christmas period. Those among you who've been following us closely will know that the project formally came to an end on the 31st of December 2019, but we had a few episodes left stashed up um, to release in the new year. And here's the first of them. This was recorded when Karen O'Reilly and I took a trip to Emil in Sweden to present at a conference on lifestyle migration. And I thought this was a really interesting recording to share with you because it kind of gives a little bit of a retrospective on the project and the things that we've learned over the course of doing this research with British people who live in the EU in a time of Brexit. And we'll be doing a few more episodes like this over the coming months as we wrap the project up formally. So it's over to us in a snowy landscape in Umeå, Sweden. Okay, so we started this project in June 2017. So that's like two and a half years ago. We shouldn't still be doing it. But uh, as you may be aware, Brexit hasn't happened yet. Um, so actually, we were supposed to originally finish this project in, oh, good Lord, I think, I think March of this year. I think we've had three extensions. I think we've had three extensions, yeah. Um, and it has been one of the most fascinating things I've ever done, one of the most exhausting things I've ever done, and one of the most messy things I've ever done, I would say. What have we actually been doing, Karen? Can you... Yeah, so I think our aim here was to kind of briefly just talk you through what we've been doing and then pull out the three items in the title, which were about it being complex, longitudinal and multimodal. But first of all, just to talk you through a little bit. So, so basically, face-to-face interviews with actually, in the end, at the moment, 242 Britons. Even that sounds fairly simple, but there have been lots of email and Skype interviews as well and ongoing, you know, more and more interviews with people when we've come back to them. Uh, then we, we boosted the sample with um, people of colour and some younger people as well because we realised through our sampling means that we were leaving certain groups out. Uh, we've also included a panel of 200 Britons. This actually originally, this was my idea, I'll take claim to that one, to have a few representatives across Europe so that as Brexit proceeded, we could like get have a few people and we said, well, maybe aim for seven countries and a few people that we could just email or call up and say, how's things going now in your country? You know, what's happening now? So that, that was the plan. And it's actually because people have been so passionate about Brexit. And so we have not had problems recruiting people. That's so true. <laughs> we've ended up with people in every single European country and a really, really wide, diverse contribution there. We've also done a couple of surveys and lots of, over to you, documentary analysis. Yeah, so looking very, very closely at what's actually happening, not the news, looking at actual parliamentary documents, looking at legal documents, trying to make sense of things that I'm 
don't even know the basic words, what they basically mean. I mean, the important thing to bear in mind about Brexit when it comes to what Brexit means for British citizens who live in the EU and equally what it means for EU citizens is that first and foremost, within the negotiation, it is a legal transformation of people's rights. Now, of course, that isn't really necessarily what we're tracking we're tracking how people respond to that, but we do need to understand what's happening. Well, I mean, that was one of the very first things that happened. You go out and you go and interview people and they're saying, yeah, but what about this? And one of the first things we, we said to each other was, hey, we are going to have to be right on message here. Because, you, you know, you can't have a long, in-depth conversation with somebody about how difficult things are and say, well, I don't know. We haven't got... Actually... Do you know, that's how we've ended up <laughs> because things have changed. So we, we've learned what we can. We try to keep on top of it as much as we can. But that, that's been a kind of surprising aspect of the project, really, of how much we've had to learn about policies and legalities and registration rules and, and things like that. In 27 different countries. Yeah. Um, so basically, for British citizens who live in the EU, what this means is that because all British citizens will lose their EU citizenship... That will disappear from the front of our passports and already has from the front of some people's passports. That something had to be put in place to replace the existing legal rights which support their residents. Um, and that's what's been right at the heart of the negotiations over citizens' rights. So I think that's a kind of a key and important point. But of course, how people live with Brexit is a slightly different thing to actually what the transformation means in practice for their lives. So I will go on to the I next I mean, one. I think it's worth saying there w you can imagine with a data set like that, there was a lot we could say today and be here for days. <laughs> but so what we focused on are just a few aspects. So one of the main aspects, we've called it a hot topic, a lively topic, a live topic. The fact that it's constantly changing. Is there something there they need to read? We're not researching something and then go back afterwards, look at the data and then say, oh, what have we found out? You know, it's ongoing, responding, writing reports, communicating, keeping on top of the legalities, the changes, the political changes. Yeah, and it's also because of the way in which the funding operates that we were given. So we were given funding which had a high impact component. This is a very nice British terminology for explaining that you need to have some significance beyond your immediate discipline uh, and probably beyond the academy. We were given the funding on the grounds that we would be involved in that public circulation of knowledge about Brexit. And I think that framed the project in a very particular way. And in thinking about what this means sociologically, of course, you can never take your sociological hat off because, of course, we're very, very critical of the entire impact agenda in the UK as well because of the bad purposes to which it has been used um, as well as the good and, and the fact that it doesn't actually encourage very good, careful analysis. So we had to think very carefully about what we were going to do. And that's one of the reasons why we... Uh, started to think about how we might engage with people through the research and also how we might actually be involved with this public circulation of knowledge. And of course, not everything's within our control. I should also say that. But, um, but yeah, believe it or not, there's very limited public interest in the case of British citizens who live in the EU, full stop. One of the really frustrating things about the project is how often we either, one of the other of us, gets an email or a WhatsApp or something, and I'm looking forward to your findings. <laughs> so we've ended up saying, well, you know, there won't be like an exact one findings. There are lots and there are various different ways that we're communicating them. We've got, um, obviously, the, 
the website has got an awful lot on it. Um, we're now working on the academic articles. Some are out already. Um, we've written project <coughs> reports that we can hand back to our participants. Oh, and we've... I have copies of all of those with me, by the you way. You have them with you? Yeah, I do. Oh, my God, you better get them out. <laughs> we've written evidence to um, government inquiries and things like that. But one of the things we wanted to talk about like this was, you know, on one level about the fact that we are... Um, you know, we're talking to people regularly and we're hearing their pain very often and their frustrations with Brexit. So one thing we had to learn about the policies ourselves and try to feed back where we could and, and keep on top of... It's about communicating, not doing a report, finishing reporting. But that but came with that, this sort of level of responsibility that we had with, with people. And as well as that, think about the fact that we're, we're tweeting as well. I mean, constantly tweeting. There's a Twitter feed regular. There are infographics that we've produced. And before that, I certainly, probably more than Mikola, made it quite clear that I am anti-Brexit. And that's a very difficult thing. That's one of the first things we, we had to confront is to interview people and stay objective, stay detached, but could not possibly pretend that we weren't one way or another. So I mean, that's been quite... Yeah, and I think that that does link onto the kind of the points about the kind of the longitudinal dimension of this and the way in which we're implicated in Brexit. There's no avoiding the fact that we are not impartial bystanders. There's no possibility of being an impartial bystander, I don't believe, if you are a British citizen or anyone living in the UK at the moment. You're not, you're not really afforded that luxury of being able to ignore what's happening because it's, on the, it's in the newspapers and the news all of the time. Everyone has an opinion about Brexit. And, you know, the other side of this is if you go and present work about Brexit in the UK, it's quite different when I've presented it in Europe, you don't know what is coming into the room and what types of emotions people are bringing into the room. And I think that that, that, that just points to how much of a hot topic, not a hot topic, how much a current issue can shape the reception of the work. And I've watched even my colleagues who work with EU citizens be approached by people who want to tell them their story, but they do it through a way of going, well, you haven't got that right. That isn't the right thing because my experience is this. So there's a lot of managing those types of emotionalities that go into that. While at the same time, you know, we are producing knowledge that we hope will feed I think into, into the policies more than anything else and into that public debate. And that has been an interesting and kind of ongoing process. Now, of course, the reason that we're doing this research is because we're known for our work with British citizens who live in Europe. So we've come to this with a combined total of, I think now 42 years of experience of working with British citizens in Europe. Is that right? I don't know. I haven't added it up, if you say so. <laughs> and I think that this, of course, did that did feed our initial research design. And I suppose what we didn't say when we talked about the four, 242 interviews was the first thing we did, the first way we designed it in the funding proposal was to go back to where we'd done research. Yeah. Yeah, it was. In, I mean, for me, it was just a really nice return, and um, you know, meeting people I've known for for many, many years now, and and actually a lot of new people. I mean, only some people I've managed to keep. A lot of people have returned, so there are newcomers as well. But along with that, a consciousness that when my first research, I wanted to understand a particular phenomenon in a particular place and a particular way of life. Now I wanted to understand Brexit for 
British people living in Europe. This is just one small group. And so a, an absolute consciousness about, as I say, the sort of sense of sampling. How am I going to find other types of people and, um, you, know, you know, reach out more broadly? So quite a bit of work going into that. But I think what was interesting about this, and this is what I found going back to the lot, having not been for 12 years, mm. I think it was 12 years, was that actually the people who would come forward to take part in a project about Brexit are precisely the people who would not come forward to take part in a project about British people in France. Mm -hmm. So the people who had become highly for want of a better word, and it's not a word I like, integrated into the French society in the lot. Mm. I'd meet them when I was there before, but they wouldn't readily take part in research about British people in Europe. Whereas as soon as you put Brexit in front of it, it brought people to the fore who had not come to the fore before. So in that way, it did, that did help with the sampling. But of course, working in a rural area like the lot... Mm where there aren't very many employment opportunities, a lot of people are self-employed, run their own businesses and things like that, meant that we weren't I wasn't necessarily getting the people in France who were employed in local labour markets or definitely in European so labour markets. to Toulouse. Yeah, so I moved, yeah. I moved to Toulouse. Not, well, I did spend a lot of time there, but, um, well, but I moved the Airbnb, research down so to she Toulouse. Lived there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was a local. So... Um, and I think that, that it was, it's been really interesting from that point of view to think about who those studies of British people in Europe or lifestyle migrants include and who they don't, they don't include. And I think that's been a really important le lesson for us. People came forward, you know, reading, reading about the project in other ways or telling each other about it who would not have been located before. But what's fascinating about that is that there they are saying they didn't want to associate with other British or they don't see themselves as a British abroad, but they're relating to the project as British people. They become British through Brexit, they, And this is one, one of the really fascinating outcomes is how, how Brexit itself has absolutely drawn out their sense, well, both their sense of Europeanness that was never really talked about very much before and their sense of Britishness. And these, these have suddenly come, well, in a way, as they're being threatened, then they're really coming to the fore. I think this, this has given us, it's given us unique access in some respects, but it also gives us quite a developed starting point to move from and I think that a lot of the people that we've worked with I think it's fair to say and and this also points to some of the exclusions about who doesn't come forward and I think that that's an important question to ask I should state I reckon about 70% of the people who've taken part in our research are remain oriented they're not ambivalent and they're not leavers for the most part, although we have interviewed but then leavers. if that's 70% you're saying there might be 30% who are leavers or not sure yeah. That's quite a lot. Yeah, exactly. Actually. Well, that's, yeah. I mean, that's just a number off the top of my head though, yeah. Karen. So we're on to, it's complicated. And this is where I think we've, we're going to start to pull it back around to some of the, um, to some of the earlier work that we've done on lifestyle migration and thinking about the frameworks that um, particularly Karen has developed through her work on migration in respect to thinking about practice theory. We're on to, it's complex. Right. Thank you. I so, just need to, um, right. And I think that this is really important and it, it links to quite a few of the other presentations that we've heard today in terms of thinking about the different structures and the different degrees of agency and the kind of internalisation of some structures. And then what happens when something like Brexit happens, which, you know, as I said, is, is a legal transformation, but which is experienced in a very visceral 
and very personal way. Yeah, and I think I would like to um, come at this with a particular example because, as you say, because we've been doing this kind of research for a long time and obviously our focus in France and Spain is absolutely longitudinal, our focus on Europe as a place to migrate to is, you know, it's always been a context for a long long time in our research. The, The notion of freedom of movement has been kind of the backdrop to a lot of what we've done. And kind of pulling together a lot of what we've been saying just now, there are a lot of campaign groups that have emerged, which is another really, really fascinating phenomenon at the moment. And these campaign groups are mobilised around representing British people abroad and how, you know, helping them cope with Brexit and find out what might be happening. A lot of these campaign groups are advising people to get registered now, this is when we reached one of these moments as like, where are we here? Are we activists? Is it our job to tell people that you must get registered? Oh, you need to step back a bit. You need to step back for right. a second on I, the yeah, registration. I you okay, so one of the issues at this, what, where we are at the moment is that for British citizens who um, are living in the EU 27, a kind of a temporary stopgap is that they basically need to be in a position that they can demonstrate that they are lawfully resident as EU citizens. Now, one of the things that the intra-European migration literature hasn't managed to do very successfully is remind people that in law, freedom of movement is a conditional, not unconditional right. And therefore, in order to go and live in another country, you have to actually lawfully, if you've lawfully exercised freedom of movement, this actually requires that you can demonstrate that you are self-sufficient by whatever level it is that the state sets for self-sufficiency and not be a burden on the welfare state, essentially. You also have to have comprehensive health insurance. Now, in practice... This isn't necessarily what's been happening. And because of a push within the European Union towards an understanding of EU citizenship that's based on fundamental rights, so everyone is equal, people have been moving all over the place. And in most countries, there are some systems of registration. Stefan showed this lovely this lovely case of Spain. Spain is a kind of should be compulsory, but not really. Um, there are states where in order to get access to healthcare or order to get access to even to rental properties, you would need to be registered in some some ways. And then at the other end, you have the UK and France who have no registration system for EU citizens. So this has been <laughs> um, so, a particular so how issue. Can you, how can you, one, accuse people of not registering and not being legal when the systems weren't even in place in the, in the first place? I knew people in Spain who had tried to register and pretty much had been told, run along and stop wasting my time. So how can you accuse these people of being illegal? And then how can you turn around and say, you need to do this, you need to do that, that's what you should have done? And then we know, I mean, you've got one example, I don't know if you want to use it, of somebody who who really has come unstuck because they did go to the French So they went to the French authorities and were found to be not lawfully resident and they were asked to leave within 30 days. And I think that this is, I mean, we will see there will be more cases like this. And we know from other migration research, and this is where it's interesting to bring it into conversation with other migration research, that women are disproportionately disadvantaged by migration systems that require documentary evidence. Think about any periods of time that you can't testify that you were in a country 
And there might be various reasons for that. You might just be lodging and you might not have a contract. You may also be, you know, we also know that domestic abuse survivors, for example, have particular issues with demonstrating their residence, which means that they have they have issues um, there. And a lot of women live on live in houses where their names are not on bills. And this is what I mean when I say that women are disproportionately affected. So lessons from there can definitely be brought across to explain what the light possible outcome of this might be. So to get back to the point on the slide, yeah. <laughs> was it was that, you know, people exert agency within given structures and they learn how to go on and they adapt given the existing structures. So you need to know what the structures are in place, but not just what the rules and regulations are, but what the practicing, what the governance regimes are in practice, and then how people react to that. And that's why that it's been really useful to have this kind of longitudinal perspective, but also put us in quite a difficult position because we will not come out on Twitter and say, you must go and get yourselves registered and get yourselves legal because we know that there are people who are going to fall through the gaps of that. And another really nice outcome of this longitudinal analysis, I think, and this sort of analysis of the relationship between structure and agency over time has been this study that we did with Mike Danby who was actually working as a, as a master's student in Granada and very kindly did some, um, you could have a massive conversation about positionality and reflexivity here, but we, we got him to do some interviews for us with younger people in Granada. He came out with this really fascinating analysis about how they are almost the kind of neoliberal self-embodied. They are the flexible person. They were kind of, well, we'll be all right. Well, we're not really sure, but well, we might be living here and we might be living there. And your first reaction to that is these are the perfect neoliberal self. But then we were having a conversation only last night or yesterday morning, whenever it was, I can't remember now, saying, actually, is that not just that they also are responding to circumstances beyond their control? So I think a little bit of detail here would be useful. Yeah, so we're on. talking about <laughs> young British citizens between the ages of 18 and 35 who are living in southern Spain at this point in time. And in fact, some of them have already moved on from southern Spain. They're people who are employed on temporary contracts for the most part. I'm not entirely certain of the degree to which they're paid in local currency either, to what extent this is cash in hand. They are not people who are lawfully exercising freedom of movement. And I think that this is a really important point. A lot of the focus around Brexit has been on, free well, it has been on freedom of movement exclusively and what gets lost when freedom of movement is removed. Whereas actually there are populations of British citizens who are not exercising freedom of movement you in law. You talking about mobility. Well, let's not go there. And I think that what was quite interesting about this was they were quite lukewarm when asked about what Brexit would mean for them, which is counter to a lot of the other um, responses that we were getting from older, some older British citizens. And I'm not talking about retirees, just no, for clarity, no. but kind of over the age of 30, perhaps more slightly more settled populations. I was say, yeah, probably people who, who had considered where they were living now to be their yeah. home. And we thought this was really interesting because it's like, well, you know, these young people, you know, why do they appear not to be so bothered by Brexit? And I say that cautiously, but actually when you started to look at what they were saying, these are people who because of the reasons that they are in Spain working or maybe moving on to another country is because of the challenges of finding work in Britain. And this is exciting. It's an adventure. 
But it's also a response to what is an incredibly systemically volatile economic situation in Britain and Europe, where people with high levels of education, I mean, these are all people with degrees for the most part, can't get into the labour market. And, and so we do and have know to look that at there's no way they can ever afford a house. Yeah. And not really like settling in the yeah. UK is Hard. in the future is problematic for them. So I think that there need to be flexible in order to find work and in order to have a life for themselves. Actually, Brexit intervenes in that in an interesting way, which is we've coped with this. And if this this is what the British public are going to throw at us and the British government are going to throw at us, well, you know, it's not great and it's pretty shit for Britain because that is what they say. But at the end of the day, you know, we've always been required to be flexible. So we will continue being flexible and we'll find a way. And I wonder what would happen if we went and talked to some of these people now, because that was quite early on as well. And I'm wondering if that, that was a first reaction. Whereas the first reaction for the more settled people was, oh my God, I've no idea. And then some kind of readjustment. For these, it was, oh, I was used to that kind of thing. We'll, we'll sort it out. But now as time's gone on and actually it looks more like a reality, it's like, okay, I'm in Spain, I've got to decide. And they were having those conversations. Well, I've got to decide now, do I stay in Spain? Or do I go back to Britain? Or do I quickly go somewhere else before Brexit happens so that I can claim to be there? And of course, there are people who are changing their future plans for those reasons. So, And then we, you know, we're kind of trying to bridge here between the work on lifestyle migration that we've been doing, which as we see it, has been very much about thinking about what it tells us about the kind of expectations of living in the world today and how you might navigate it in, through these forms of migration. No, you haven't seen that slide. (laughs) So this is a a phrase that Karen came up with yesterday. Nobody's responsibility but their own. And what we're trying to explain through this and what we think this this captures is something that's been, we haven't been slow to realise, but it is very curious. I mentioned before that the British public do not give a shit about British people who live abroad. And this has very, very long and historical origins. I'm not quite sure when it started, but if you go back and you look through parliamentary debates, if you look through political debates about British citizens overseas, there are hardly any of them, first of all. They're an absent presence, I suppose is a good way of putting it. And where they are discussed, they are heavily... um, I wouldn't say demonised. I think that's too strong a word, but they're kind of out of sight and out of mind. I think they have been demonised at different times in the media. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So what happens when we fast forward to Brexit is the British government decide that they want to go for a reciprocal arrangement with the EU. And therefore, British citizens are not their responsibility. They are the responsibility of the EU. Okay, so strictly speaking, that means the British government are responsible for the EU citizens in Britain. So what we find when we start to talk with EU member state officials is that actually because of benign indifference, and I would say it is benign indifference, they're not really that bothered about the British and the EU either, but they are very concerned about their EU citizens in the UK. And these are member state officials who have no responsibility for EU citizens in the UK, but do have responsibility for British citizens in Europe. So you find they've already fallen between the gaps within the negotiations. And don't forget... If a European citizen is allowed to remain in Britain, they are still a European citizen. 
if a British person is allowed to remain in Spain or Sweden, they're still no longer a European citizen. So if they have a partner living somewhere else or children living somewhere else or they were working across borders, all those things remain problematic. The future remains problematic. And no one, and actually we have now reached the point that we, I think we're feeling quite angry about this because no one is speaking for them. What's additionally interesting about this is that what that then does is it drives down to the level of the individual the need to take matters into your own hands. And this has been happening right from day one. As soon as the referendum was called, British citizens started to apply where they could to become naturalised in the countries that they live in the European Union. Now, of course, there are countries that do not permit that. Spain, notably being one of them, does not legally permit dual citizenship. And so asking them the question of why they would do this at this time, because this really had not been happening before, revealed that this was a mechanism where they thought that they could take a little bit of control over one aspect of what Brexit might mean to them. And that is their ability to stay put. It doesn't resolve any issues relating to their ability to claim their pensions or anything relating to move their social security accumulation. <laughs> but it, well, it might help them to move in the future if it's a European citizenship because they maintain freedom mm -hmm. of movement, of course. Yeah, yeah. And then you start to see as time unfolds, people scrabbling around, trying to find ways where they can secure themselves in a state of protracted uncertainty. And I think that this quotation from Paul, who's one of our citizens panellists in Germany, says it all, really. But he also reveals that he had no expectation that the British state or any other state would look after his interests. And I think that tying this background to lifestyle migration and where we've kind of talked about the extent to which this is a very highly individualised migration undertaken by an individual you know, obviously supported by all of these different types of structure that attract people to places, the different, the geopolitical position of Britain um, or, or other countries within the world, those kind of relative dimensions of privilege that we've talked about, how those might, though, be paired with kind of precarity and all of these types of things. But I think also to bring it back to practice theory, this is the embodiment of these structural changes. They have completely taken on board that this is their individual choice, their problem for them to deal with so much. It's taken us this long to realise. Do you know what? The whole assumption is it's no one's responsibility but their own. And I think that that is, I mean, that's our overall conclusion. For the, That's our final. No one's responsibility but their own. <laughs> we don't want to say that. But that's a critique. But, <laughs> but I suppose the kind of closing question is, why is this the case? The starting point really should be, it shouldn't be, why should the British government care about, or why should the EU care about these British citizens? It should actually be, well, why don't they care? Because in a situation where we have a kind of, where we don't want people to self-responsibilise, then actually somebody would be out there advocating for them and thinking about them as a collective. You've been listening to the Brexit Brits Abroad podcast with me, Dr. Mikola Benson. If you're not already subscribed to the podcast, you can do so by searching for Brexit Brits Abroad on iTunes and Libsyn. And to join in the conversation, follow us on social media. 
We're on Twitter and Instagram at BrexPatsEU and you can visit our Facebook page, Brexit Brits Abroad. To find out more about the project, visit our brand new website. That's BrexitBritsAbroad.org. And I'll be back in a couple of weeks with the next episode.